Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Harriet Johnston, Ytree's Head of Brand and Marketing, and I'm hosting a series of Futureverse episodes in which we dig into topics that are closely related to Ytree's central purpose. So a reminder, that is, we want to build a world where wealth is defined by how we live, not what we have. Each episode, I'll be joined by a member of the Ytree team as my co-host. Today, it's Ytree's co-founder and CEO, Stuart Cash. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Harriet. So in the UK, more than a third of us struggle to talk to anyone about money. And one in 10 are not even willing to discuss their finances with their partner. At Ytree, we're really passionate about opening up conversations around money for our clients and their families. For us, communication about wealth is an important part of the journey to a life that's defined by how you live, not what you have. But there's no denying it can be tricky. So how best to ensure that these conversations are productive? To help us unpack this thorny topic, Harriet and I are delighted to be joined by two brilliant guests close to our community. Diana Chambers, otherwise known as the Family Wealth Mentor, works with her clients to help them manage their wealth in emotionally intelligent ways and to address the challenges and opportunities that they face when owning, spending, and allocating their wealth. Before this, she worked in the charity sector, having previously been the first woman to be hired into management at Redland PLC, a major British company. Oliver James is a distinguished psychologist, author, and broadcaster. He's a regular on television, having produced and presented several television series about the issues surrounding mental illness and various psychological aspects of British society. He's presented on shows from Question Time to programs looking at murder, celebrities, and Frasier. His books include Why They F You Up, How to Survive Family Life, and Affluenza, which questions whether consumerist aspirations make us miserable. Diana and Oliver, welcome to our podcast. So Oliver, you did meet some individuals in countries who were less affected by the affluenza virus, as you memorably call it. What did they do differently, those people? How did they manage to avoid it? I met a chap in Singapore who'd done an amazing transition out of Malaysia into Singapore from a very, very poor background. And he had managed completely to uh, see wet the, the pitfalls, the potential pitfalls of worrying too much about having ever more money. But they were very far few between because in, in all the countries I went to, which was New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, uh, Moscow, Shanghai, Copenhagen, and New York. In, in, in all those places, I did interview millionaires. And in all those places, most of the millionaires were very much stuck in the affluent, you know, trapped in affluenza. They put too high a value on money, possessions, appearances, and fame, or some mixture of those, and, and were still expecting the acquisition of those things to make them fulfilled and of course obviously it didn't so you know the, the great question for people who've made lots of money is how can i how can i move from being someone who for probably very good reasons has placed a huge value on these things but how can i move from that and rethink my ethos rethink what's important 
I recall that Affluenza was written in about 2007, if that's right, Oliver. And that was just before the financial crash. It's been a long time since we've had a real crash. And the generational divides that we talk about now were barely discussed at that point in time. I think now we live perhaps in a more purpose-driven world. We've got Gen Z, Gen X, and they're increasingly aware of societal problems like climate, gender, inclusion. And we also hear that they're looking for fulfillment at work and they move to roles much more frequently to feel more motivated. And we know that younger generations tend to live much more in the moment. So do you think the concepts that you dealt with in terms of the affluenza virus would be the same today, or would there be some cohorts that might be immune? I don't think so at all, unfortunately. Sadly, although quite a lot of people did read my book when it was published in 2007, it doesn't seem to make a blind bit of difference. You know, I have children, a 21-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son, and the system has become, uh, it's become an extension of the human relations departments of corporation. The obsession with exam results means that Generation Z has to be very preoccupied, or at least people from affluent homes have to be extremely preoccupied with, with how they look, as well as what exam results they get, the, the sort of curation of themselves and the whole building up of a CV, which, you know, my age, I'm 69, CVs meant nothing to us at university, let alone beforehand. My children have to think about that stuff. So I don't actually think that affluenza has decreased for that lot. Some of them do opt out and say they care about the climate or whatever, as, as has always happened. The great majority, they're just completely buying into the idea that the only thing that matters in the first instance is what grades they get, then the caliber of their university, and then the amount of money they can earn. They're leaving university with huge debt and uh, a, a housing market, which is a complete disaster for anybody young. No change there then, Oliver. So at its root, your book really is about a, a kind of a dysfunctional relationship with money. And Diana, of course, that, that's where you come in. Many of our listeners won't actually have heard of a wealth therapist before. Can you explain exactly what a wealth therapist does? First, Harriet, I need to say I am not a wealth therapist because I'm not a psychotherapist and kudos to Oliver who is. I call myself a wealth mentor. I'm always looking at life through the lens of money, which of course affects all the dimensions of our lives. So I'm always looking at the human dimensions of wealth. For example, if we're going out with friends to eat, how are we going to share the meal bill? Or if we are siblings who jointly inherit an asset, how are we going to manage that together as siblings? If we are spouses who have very different risk tolerances or spending patterns. How do we navigate that? Because it's playing out in our lives. What I really try to do is help my clients to make sense of the role of wealth in their lives. Your work with wealthy families and individuals is all about teaching what you call financial, emotional intelligence. Can you give us a bit of insight into what you mean by this? So normally when we think of being financially savvy, we think about the financial IQ side. At the most basic level, that would be everything from budgeting, where does the money come from and go to, are we saving, are we investing in an astute way, do we manage credit appropriately? Those would be all the basic financial IQ skills. What I'm looking at is the financial emotional intelligence, which I would define as how money affects me, then how it affects my relationships with other people. And thirdly, how do I talk about it constructively in my relationships? Because I believe that the ability to talk about money constructively is the first and best line of defense in any challenges in families of wealth. 
So why do we find it so challenging to talk about money, do you think, Diana? Money is really weighted with a lot of symbolism and emotions to start with. And then if we're having these conversations with close family members or close friends, there are several things that we could be concerned about. One would be that we would rock the boat. Another would be that we might damage the relationship or even lose the relationship. So we tend to avoid the conversations for those reasons. But in my experience, we are more likely to have those negative outcomes if we don't have the conversation than if we do have it. Part of your process of working with clients is to ask them to write a, a money autobiography, I think, where you ask them to look over their entire life trajectory from pocket money to inheritance. And so in your experience, what are the biggest determinants of an individual's relationship with money? Thanks for mentioning the money autobiography because I actually think it's an extraordinarily valuable tool. I write, wrote my first one in my 30s. I think it's especially helpful because we can see the whole arc of our life through the lens of money. It helps us both to appreciate how that has played out and to understand it and to take some ownership of it if we so choose. And then once we understand it, we can then make decisions if that is how we want to continue our relationship with money. So it's valuable so that we look at it and understand it. And what I've experienced is that the ways in which our relationship with money is shaped come through the money messages that we receive. And those money messages come both verbally, two that I got very strongly from my dad were never be in debt and always be the first to pay for anything. And they shaped my belief systems. So when I took out my first mortgage, when I bought my first home in my mid-20s, signing the mortgage documents was literally painful because I was going against this message of never be in debt, even though the mortgage was a strategic form of investment. So we get shaped by money messages, which then form our belief systems. More recently, I have been studying the way in which anything that has been a trauma in our lives also has an impact on our relationship with money. So let me just explain that a little bit. I believe that all of us have experienced some trauma, whether it's individuals who might have had health issues or losses of different sorts, or it could be a collective experience, such as living in a culture where there is a lot of violence going on or insecurity, or it could be ancestral passed down to us through the multi-generations. And we do pass down a lot more than wealth to our kids. So the way that I am now seeing this is that our underlying trauma is expressed in our relationship with money. Should we get practical? I know, Diana, you follow a set of processes with your clients. Could you, could you run us through the process that you go through? What steps you undertake to encourage people to be more productive in their conversations around money? On talking about money, I think it's really a fairly simple process and we need to slow down enough to actually do it. So the first step is to take a look at ourselves and to say, who am I and what am I bringing to this conversation? The second step is to look at the other party or parties to the conversation and try to stand in their shoes and figure out who are they and what are they bringing to this conversation and all the while being both compassionate and curious because everybody's doing the best they can. And we might think that we really understand the other when in reality, there are so many different dimensions playing out in their lives that it's really good to just see who they are, what they're bringing to the table in this conversation. And so to be curious, then to invite the other person or people to have the conversation with you. Don't just assume they'll want to have this conversation, but to really ask and say, 
I would really like to have this conversation. Are you open? And hopefully they'll say yes. If not, you might have to wait. When you do have this conversation, be thoughtful about where and when. So choose a place where it's comfortable. You won't be interrupted. There's plenty of space and time. And the timing is important too. Have the conversation when people are feeling present and refreshed. Do not have it late at night after a late dinner with alcohol. So set the stage for this to be a successful conversation. And then when you have the conversation, listen actively and reflectively. So really pay attention to the other person, not so that you're planning your immediate response, but so that you're really listening to them. And if necessary, if there's something that you haven't really comprehended, say, I think this is what I heard you say, and repeat to them what you think you heard them say, and then say, is that right? Right. So that you're really making sure that there's no um, misinterpretation, misunderstanding in the conversation. And at the end, as you close, summarize and afterwards write something down about the conversation just to summarize it. And it can be very simple. It doesn't have to be, you know, a legal document about the conversation. It could be as simple as a text. But that's the basic flow. Who am I? Who are they? Ask, set it up, listen actively and reflectively, summarize and write it. Fantastic. It's so interesting that in the end, it's all about understanding how we can communicate about money in a way that isn't, as you said before, just a sort of a message that you receive kind of passively. Um, what we'd like to do in the second half of the podcast is discuss some sort of specific situations where it becomes really important to be able to communicate effectively around money and ask for both of your advice, any practical tips. So I'm going to I'm going to launch right in. Oliver, you've written that the impact on children of inheriting wealth is usually dire. Why? Well, inheriting wealth when you have a child of a rich person is probably demotivating, of course, because most of the population are almost working to live. Um, and property prices, whatever it is, that all, all the cost of living pressures on the general population. On, on the child of a rich person, they know that in the end, unless they fall out appallingly with their parents, they're going to have easily enough money to do what they want. And, and I do have, they also, I mean, I have clients who, who were sent off to Eton and who are now in their 20s. Um, and who feel that they come from a different class from their parents, that their parents came from scarcity. They want the best for their children, so they sent them off to, to public schools and then off they go to university, which their parents may even not gone. And suddenly, that you, you really are talking about people who are from very different cultures. And the, and the, the children that I have to help that often haven't, you know, you know, don't really feel on the same page as their parents anymore. Their parents have different tastes and clothes and everything. Uh, they don't really get it. And it's a it's a big problem. Usually, if somebody's reached me, they they think of themselves as having a problem. They've already got a coke habit, or parents who they don't understand if they're a child, or whatever it is. And so, I will always start off with 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 what's often known as cognitive analytic therapy. I'll just start off with with a getting them to sign up to 16 sessions in which we start with four sessions about their childhood and then and then eight more sessions we create diagrams that help them to find the escapes out of their mental vicious circles that they get trapped in um, and all that sort of practical stuff uh, and then but actually my fundamental point is that genes play very little part in explaining why one child of a rich person is suffering and not another or indeed why a rich person became rich in the first place. You know, one in three entrepreneurs lost a parent before the age of 14. Adversity is 
really what mainly drives exceptional achievement. So all my emphasis in the end is, is trying to help people to see how they're fighting the battles from their childhood and that they don't need to fight those battles anymore, that the way they coped with their childhood was a suitable adaptation to try and deal with that situation, uh, whether it was by trying to get rich or if you're the child of a rich person uh, and you've been sent off to a public school that's got nothing to do with what their parents are like. Whatever your dilemma is resulting from your childhood, that's my focus, is trying to help you to get to the point where you can actually live in the present. Dana, I'm wondering if you agree with that, because I expect that I don't know whether you feel that you're coming across problem children or problem families or whether you're kind of more preventative because you get involved at an earlier stage and you kind of, in your work, can involve aiding the transition of inherited wealth, maybe maybe even before the kids start to start contemplating at an early stage what money might mean. Well, what stage do you get involved? Do you get involved very early on? And how do you help with parents and children in terms of, do you start with the parents even when their kids are just being born or do you kind of wait to later stages when they're teens and it's a family discussion? How does it work with you? Of course, it varies. <laughs> I have had clients who've said, this is new territory for us. We don't know what we don't know. You've been here before. You've seen other people go through this. Please help us. So that would potentially be after a big liquidity event or something like that. So yes, I act as a guide through uncharted territory. And um, obviously, problems can surface in the whole experience. But when you ask Stuart about at what stage, I mean, ideally parents are educating their children consciously about money from day one because they're doing it unconsciously. So what I hope is to help them to make conscious choices about how they're educating about money. And they're doing it not only through what they say, but how they behave. And the kids are watching everything. Can I ask you, Diana, what does a really great transition of inherited wealth look like to you? A great transition of inherited wealth would mean that the inheritors are ready to receive it. So they have what I would call wealth inheritance skills. And the most fundamental of those would be their own relationship with themselves. It's the first basic building block. Do they know who they are? Do they know their direction in life? Have they got the skills that they want to pursue that? Is there anything that they need to heal? Are they ready to receive this wealth? In addition, you can layer on top of that the, the basic financial IQ skills that I discussed earlier around understanding how to manage money, the cognitive side. My, my focus is dominantly on the EQ side, but I think that those two need to go hand in hand to be a smart and wise inheritor. I've got another follow-up question. How do you support families where you have one sibling that might be really engaged and interested in money for money's sake, interested in investing and what have you, and then you've got other siblings that aren't? Because I can imagine that it must be very difficult for parents in that situation. Again, it's highly customized. I would work with each one of the siblings individually and then on an intermittent basis, bring them all together in a family meeting so that they all are able to hear the same information, share with one another, become allies to each other, learn together. But if there are different levels of interest, experience, motivation, then they need to have different um, support, each one of them. I mean, I think a lot of our community grapples with how do they reveal to their kids? And actually sometimes how do they reveal to their spouse the fact that they've got quite a lot of money and they don't really know how to go about that conversation for the first time. I wonder whether you've got any tips for how to think about that one. 
Well, I have some immediate thoughts about that because if it's with children, I would be starting at a young age talking about money, whether it's saving or giving or spending, whatever it is. And I would be encouraging what I would call age or rather even better yet maturity appropriate conversation. How much capacity does somebody have to hear and receive whatever you're going to say to them? And with kids also, I would say that if you're having a conversation with them, make it clear at the outset that you're inviting their input. Let's say you were wanting to discuss with them either a holiday you might all go on together or some philanthropy that you might be wanting to engage in as a family. Make it clear that they have an input, but that you as the parents are still making the final decision so that there's no confusion about whose decision this is. So those would be like basic principles for communicating with kids. But then in addition for communicating not only with kids, but with everybody around money, I would say always be honest. Because we're so uncomfortable about these conversations in many circumstances, we sidestep and we might say something that's not entirely true. But we want to be honest. And it doesn't mean that you have to say everything or anything that you don't want to say, but what you do say should be accurate. I would also say always treat the person like you trust them unless there's some reason that you really do not. Because what I've seen often happen with uh, young adult inheritors is they suddenly learn about the wealth in the family and they go, why didn't they tell me this beforehand? You know, I might have made some different uh, educational choices or different career choices. How do you counterbalance that, though, with perhaps a concern that revealing wealth means kids don't need to work as hard, they don't need the same results? Maybe, Oliver, you think that's a good thing. Or they don't need to really find a career that's going to be challenging. And so they kind of lose motivation because they know that money's there and they don't need to worry. And they don't even need to think proactively about how they might want to spend their life. It's just about spending money. How do you counterbalance the honest with this sort of desire for your kids to have some kind of fulfillment and challenge and motivation in their life. These conversations about money are not the only thing that's happening in the family dynamics. So hopefully we as parents who are seeking to do the money conversations well are also doing the other elements of parenting well so that we're instilling the good values. We're encouraging the um, intrinsic motivation. We are helping them to decide that they want to do a task for the sake of a task, not just because of the reward that's associated with it. So I think it's a little simplistic to say, well, just because of the money, they're going to go off the rails. It's it's because of all the different dimensions. So we want to make sure we've got them all in place when we're doing this. And if you look at my own story, the way I chose a corporate career over pursuing what I might have found really satisfactory, I was still going to pursue something really satisfactory. It wasn't that I was going to do nothing. It was two choices that were both good. I think what I've really learned today is that the money messages we receive from our parents or from, from others as we're growing up are, are coming through loud and clear, even when they're perhaps unintentional, and that that has the biggest impact on us. So communication, direct communication between different family members seems to be the really, really core piece of learning that I'm taking away from this. I don't know, Oliver, if you had anything that you wanted to say just to round out the conversation about money when it comes to parents and children. I think that in our society, there is an equation between love and money. When we're born, we born into a family where we have to compete with siblings for resources 
or emotional disorders as well as material. And we develop niches which will gain our parents' access and attention. The problem is that wealth maker, the, the person who's made all the money, that person, the absolute key is if that person and their partner can try to have what I would call a proper relationship with their child. And let's be honest, it's incredibly difficult if you're running an empire of some kind working incredibly long hours. Just really hard to do that. But it does happen. It does exist. And it has to be done through being realistic about it. You can't expect to be your teenage son's best friend, you know, if you've hardly ever met him sort of thing. But if you can somehow manage to spend time with him and just hang out and be, you know, and, and have done so throughout his life or your daughter's life, you know, so, so, okay, that might be asking for the moon. But at least, ideally, if you're a wealth creator, ideally have a partner who has that relationship with, with you know, or a nanny who does. The main thing is there has to have been somebody who's been there all the way through who really values that child, makes it feel loved, etc., etc. And you can be part of that package if you're the wealth creator. At the end of the day, I have children of, of wealth creators who really have never really had a relationship with the wealth creator at all and and know that they probably never will because that person isn't really capable of it but they have other people there are other people in their environment who have worked for them and it's been a success you know and and i think the biggest mistake that rich parents can make is because you have to be a bit of a control freak to get rich in the first place you are liable to use money to control people within your family don't <laughs> please don't do that they don't have to be like you they don't have to be a workaholic who, who beats everybody they can actually that you you are providing and i do know examples of that of people who can't do it for themselves but can do it for their children can say to their children i've created this opportunity for you to follow your nose and do what really interests you i didn't do that but i made packets of money and I want you to now use this money productively to make the world a better place, to enjoy yourself, whatever it is. And and the idea that that's going to just result in a load of sort of playboys and playgirls who go charging around the world taking drugs and making fools of themselves is, is nonsense. That only happens if you have a proper relationship with your children. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Diana. Stuart, was there anything you had taken away from this conversation or wanted to add as we wrap up here? I guess I'm just kind of reflecting on um, people I come across in my career. And I guess the thing that is really important for me anyway, is not to be defined by money. So I think in, in our careers, we all try to define ourselves by what we're doing at any point in time and the role we might have, the status that might give us from the title or the organization that we work for. And I think for me, it's quite important to not let that define you and let you be defined by the values you live by, the relationships you have, rather than by the perception or the trapping of perceived wealth. I, think, I guess that's kind of, I'm just listening to this conversation thinking that's that's how I feel about it really, is money shouldn't be the, the end game, it's a facilitator. Thank you. I want to say thank you, Diana, to you for giving us your time and that incredible insight into being a wealth mentor. And Oliver, thank you to you as well for all of your contributions to the conversation today. And if any of the issues we've discussed in today's episode piqued your interest, please visit y-tree.com to find out more about Ytree and the work we're doing to provide a different perspective on money and life.